Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. In 2022, economic sanctions became a huge topic. Following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the global community aligned to limit the economic freedom of the Russian government by restricting access to the financial system and seizing assets held abroad. The U.S. Treasury Office of Foreign Asset Control applied sanctions to a number of crypto-related entities as well, including designations of Russian-based cryptocurrency exchanges and organizations propagating the war efforts against Ukraine. In this episode, I'm joined by my unofficial co-host and, of course, Director of Research at Chainalysis, Kim Grauer. This is part two of our conversation covering the recently released crypto crime report. If you happen to have missed part one, just scroll back a few episodes in the show playlist and then come back here after you've caught up. Kim and I discussed the sanction designation of Garantex, Hydra, and Tornado Cash and whether or not those actions achieve the intended effect. We also cover cryptocurrency recovery efforts by law enforcement and whether or not proof of reserves is a useful sign of crypto exchange solvency. For more on these topics and all things crypto Crypto, start planning your trip to New York for the Chainalysis Links Conference, which is happening April 4th and 5th. Get your ticket today because I'm expecting the conference to sell out soon. You can find registration details in the show notes. This is your host, Ian Andrews, and I am joined by my occasional co-host, Kim Grauer, Director of Research here at Chainalysis. Kim, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to be back for part two of 2022 in review. Kim, we're sitting here recording on January 6th, so right at the start of the year, obviously the chaos of last year is still swirling around us, but I'm curious, like, what do we have to look out for in 2023? I've seen a couple people pondering, you know, is Web3 dead before it ever really got started? You know, a lot of critics of the, the Facebook metaverse strategy, a lot of people looking at declining trading volumes and floor prices on NFTs. What's your sense? there. What do we have to look forward to in 2023 in that area? I would say that I have talked to a few different kind of hedge funds or crypto investors who are not of the opinion that Web3 is dead. They are very optimistic. And in fact, they are happy to have people think that Web3 is dead while they kind of put their heads down and find some good things to invest in. So I think that it's going to be impossible, of course, to predict what the next use case is. But I, I think one of the things that came out of the geography report and what we learned from like lessons in India was that the next big wave of crypto entrance is really going to have to be driven by a use case, particularly in, in Web3. What, what that might be, I don't know. But what India showed us was that people were onboarded into cryptocurrency in droves for a cricket trading card that their friends and family were using. And it resonated culturally because cricket's such a big deal. It, the way that the interfaces were built was that it was easy to use and it was accessible. So Figuring out that user-friendly use case that is that culturally resonates and that people that get people excited is going to be the challenge, and it could be in any Web three domain. It's really who's who builds the right UI first, I think. <laughs> I love the usability point. This is such a huge one for me. One of the really fun technical discussions we had last year on the podcast was with the team from Skiff. And they've, I'll paraphrase and say, they've taken the Google Work Suite and adapted it for the world of privacy and made it compatible with Web3. It's not required that you have a wallet, but if you have a wallet, you can authenticate to your domain using your crypto wallet instead of an email address. If you have 
an ENS domain, great, you can use that as your domain across the SCIF properties. If you want to store your files in IPFS instead of on SCIF servers, awesome. You can now have decentralized file and data storage. To me, that use case is absolutely necessary. Even if you don't care at all about crypto as a financial instrument, the idea of data privacy, sovereignty, or ownership is a thing that is more important today than ever. And so I really like that use case. The other cool episode that I had, and I actually just before Christmas got my demo miner finally. So our old friend Alex Rawitz is part of a team that has started a vehicle telematics company called Demo. And essentially the data that your car produces is in most cases proprietarily held by the car manufacturer. You know, even though you own the car and you drive the car, Access to that is totally mediated by the company that manufactured it. And you don't have the opportunity to say, well, hey, I want to take my data and share it to my insurance company or share it to, you know, an open source community project that's going to build self-driving cars. And the team at Demo thinks that's kind of upside down. And so the tech they've built, hardware device plugs into your car and they're bootstrapping it with a token so that I can earn and actually be paid for participation in the network. It is, in a sense, some crypto cryptocurrency elements, but it's not for the purposes of just speculating on the token. It's actually an entirely adjacent product. And so when I look at projects like Skiff and Demo, I'm fully convinced that Web3 is here to stay. I don't think it's going anywhere, but I do think that we need to work on better usability and bringing along the people who are not just excited about the low-level underlying technology of blockchain, but they actually start seeing real-world utility. I completely agree. I think those are some really fascinating use cases. I think I saw a few others popping up as well just in the past few days that were hitting major headlines, something like using blockchain to trace cobalt in cars was another use case that people were trialing. So people are definitely looking, continuing to look for the Web3 applications. And if anybody on the phone is working on one and they want to come on the podcast, just leave us a comment or DM me on Twitter. We'll have you on the pod. I love exploring these. I'm curious about law enforcement crypto seizures. So I think our friends over at IRS Criminal Investigations, they mentioned a stat when we were at Lynx back in May that they had seized something like $7 billion in illicit cryptocurrency. That was through the first five or six months of the year when they, they made that comment. I think it got bigger as we went along. What's the outlook there? I mean, it seems like law enforcement's getting more sophisticated. They're uh, training more people and they're getting ahead of some of the criminals in terms of sophistication. What should we expect in terms of seizures as we head into 2023? I, I mean, last I checked, it was close. It was 10 billion seized, and that was a few months Amazing. ago. So I have the privilege of getting to be a part of many of these investigations that Chainalysis works on. Some of the big name hacks that have happened, and we are commissioned often to investigate them because to some degree, it's maybe the law enforcement doesn't have the skill set to do it, but it's not that they don't have the skill set, but you need a lot of people and their training is a big part of this whole picture. But sometimes they'll just outsource it to our organization and then I can follow many of these investigations and seizing and freezing funds is such a big part of the ecosystem now. So when there's a hack, time is of the essence. People move funds really quickly now. Maybe a few years ago, you hack funds and then you kind of sit on them and move them around over a few months. But now there is a rush to 
to move the funds to a safe place where the criminals can kind of convert them into fiat and get away with the criminal activity. So time is of the essence. And so when I'm watching these investigations happen, I'm seeing in real time funds just arrived at this exchange, contacting the exchange, getting the funds frozen, and then getting them returned to law enforcement or the victims. And so that's becoming an increasingly big part of hacking and making victims whole is getting the funds, communicating with the exchanges where they're trying to cash them out, freezing those funds, getting them in the hands of law enforcement, and then eventually back to the victims. And we're also seeing beyond that, law enforcement actually finding while they're investigating a case, finding maybe the private key of a criminal and being able to seize funds that way. And more and more, we're seeing kind of this fluency of law enforcement in the fact there's likely a cryptocurrency nexus in some major criminal organizations. And how you handle that if you're on site and you find a cryptocurrency address, how you go about seizing funds, what you do once you seize the funds, how do you manage them? Where do you custody them? There's all these questions that people are sorting out in real times, and it's becoming a more and more central part of the investigations that we're seeing. And it's actually kind of a positive message because of how you can trace all of the funds to the off-ramps. It feels like you're more empowered to get those funds back if you can see exactly where they are at any moment in time. Yeah, what was once kind of black hole of information or a lost effort, suddenly there's a path to recovery there. We did an episode with our colleague Joe Saar last year, former law enforcement, and he really took us through the experience of a police officer in the field collecting evidence and kind of stumbling into an organization that was using cryptocurrency to pay for a drug smuggling and distribution operation. And I learned so much from that because I I hadn't really considered Conceived the challenge is not just following transactions on the blockchain. It starts with the evidence gathering and collection process as law enforcement is, you know, arresting a suspect. But I agree, you know, Joe is personally working on helping build that competency across all of our customer base. And certainly we've launched things like Chainalysis Academy to try and help bring that to an increasingly broad audience, which is exciting to me. Your comment about speed too is also really interesting. It makes me think about the Axie Infinity attack. Our colleague Aaron Plant was able to actually attend AxiCon and talk about the success they've had recovering. I think it's now a little over 10% of the stolen funds from the Ronin Bridge attack, which is amazing, right? This is Lazarus Group, right? People not to be messed with, the kind of supreme cyber criminals, part of the North Korean apparatus. They attacked the Ronin Bridge earlier in the year, drained hundreds of millions of dollars of Ethereum and I think another 25 million of stable coins. And while much of those funds are still on the move. The Chainalysis uh, investigations team was able to s- collaborate with law enforcement, collaborate with the team at Axie, and successfully recover some of those funds. So those are the best stories, I think, when we get a win like that. I, I agree. Collaboration is so important. Collaborating with the exchange where the funds went to, with law enforcement, with the victims, with the investigators, with other people all around the organization who might have technical expertise in a specific car- smart contract that was used. Collaboration is key. Hey, I want to shift gears a little bit because we're talking about kind of law enforcement, but related to this is sanctions. So I think we saw for the first time in history was really concerted effort from the OFAC team at the U.S. Treasury to use the tool of sanctions against some of these larger organized criminal and nation state sponsored actors, specifically in the domain of cryptocurrency. It kind of started with the SUEX-CHADX takedown 
down. But then we saw it accelerate with things like Hydra and Tornado Cash, which were both being used extensively by, by criminal organizations. I think the Garantex exchange was also targeted. What did all that come to? I know we've got a in the crime report a section on sanctions specifically. Maybe summarize that for us and then talk a little bit about your expectations, kind of the outlook going forward. Sanctioning is one of the, you're right to say, it's one of the most interesting things to pay attention to because OFAC was coming in strong last year with many high-profile sanctioning events. And not to mention that they started to sanction things like these high-risk exchanges that were known to be major money laundering organizations. And we've worked really hard over the years, actually, to highlight these money laundering groups that are facilitating ransomware because every ransomware payment has to be able to be converted to fiat. And what's happening is it's all going to a very few number of deposit addresses and a few number of services. And we hypothesized up to two, three years ago that we need to be disrupting these money laundering services. That's how you stop crypto crime. And I think that OFAC is on the same page. And so when we see things like the sanctioning of Garantex and Hydra to some degree, which is a darknet marketplace, but also a money laundering organization, we can see that real focus on disrupting the money laundering side of things. Now, I think a big kind of philosophical question is that has happened since sanctions began is how effective are sanctions and do they work? What do they cause people to just adapt or does it actually cause a reduction in the type of criminal activity that they're targeted towards? I think that's a question that many people have. With cryptocurrency, what we focused on in the sanction report this year is actually trying to say, hey, can we use data to answer these questions? Because we see all of the people that were using Hydra, we know who those wallets are. Are they using a new service? And so we were able to actually estimate how effective sanctions have been in cryptocurrency on the whole. And what we found was it's very varied. So as you can imagine, disrupting Hydra will have a different impact than disrupting Garantex. And we've kind of said Garantex has continued to operate, but actually sanctioning and shutting down Hydra has been extremely effective in stopping that kind of behavior. And we're going to really in the report talk about the different ways and the different ways that sanctions has been effective according to the type of service that was actually sanctioned. But the bottom line is the impact of sanctions varies based on the type of service that was sanctioned. I think that's a great point. You know, there's this nuance that came up a lot in the tornado cash sanctions where clearly we saw the Lazarus group was laundering through tornado cash for a period of time last year. It became their most popular step in their laundering process. But it also came out after the sanctions that there were lots of legitimate users of tornado who simply wanted some privacy, right? Where they were celebrities or well-known investors and they wanted to move funds either to donate it or to buy a certain an asset, not tip off to the world that it was them who was behind a particular transaction. And so I spent a lot of time over the last year kind of pondering this balance of privacy, which I think is a, a right we're all entitled to, against the total privacy that enables criminal activity. And for me, there's a line, and I don't have an elegant solution to, to fix this. I think it's one that we have to debate in public and work across industry and regulators, policymakers to figure out the correct balance in an applied sense. But the sanction activity is not without you know some collateral damage on the sides. But it does seem in, in a number of these cases, is like hugely effective and important that we've gotten OFAC to a point of sophistication where they're now understanding how criminal organizations are using crypto for bad and then taking proactive steps here. I'm, I'm excited to see what comes in 2023 on this front. 
I don't know who's next on the chopping block, but I suspect that it's only really begun. And I think that research, like what's going to be in our sanction section, where you can really see what happened after you sanctioned Tornado Cash. What did the counterparties do? Did they just move to a new service? And we're starting to see that sometimes there are new services that have popped up. We're actually looking for who's going to be replacing Hydra. So it is a, it is very nuanced. You know, there's not sanctions 100% stamped out the criminal activity that they meant to, but you know they made the marginal cost of carrying out a crime that much more difficult, that much more expensive. That's right. We just drive up the marginal cost and we'll <laughs> drive out all the profit seekers. That's Econ 101 if I'm remembering back to my undergrad days. I'm curious about a topic that came up a lot. I mean, we're the on-chain data company here at Chainalysis. So we kind of know more about what's happening on-chain than anybody. And in the wake of particularly the FTX collapse, everyone started asking questions about, well, is that isolated or are other exchanges at risk here? And this idea of proof of reserves became the thing everyone was talking about for the next month. What's your take on proof of reserves? Like, is that an effective thing to be measured? Can we, as Chainalysis, understand the solvency of a particular entity just by looking at the on-chain data that we collect? I think that proof of reserves is something that like we have the data there. We're always we're able to see all the transfers in and out of a service. So it's something that I think will add a dimension of transparency and accountability to services that quite frankly need to earn back the trust of users. And we might even have kind of a free market solution here where the services that simply provide really accurate, transparent proof of reserves just win more customers in the future. But there is one of the problems that we've had with proof of reserves so far and this really was exacerbated with Celsius FTX problem. And this is something that I'm still trying to wrap my head around how to deal with is so much is happening off chain. If your liabilities are in fiat currency, for example, there's so much that is happening in a complex company that takes out debt that works with different currencies all around the world. There's so much happening on a complex balance sheet that is proof of reserve possible in a way where it's actually really effective. And another thing that might impact this is, well, I don't think it would impact it if it's driven by the services that are providing proof of reserves, but sometimes you simply don't know about all the wallets that a company owns. So if you're an external party trying to offer proof of reserves for another party, like are you going to have comprehensive on-chain data for them that people can trust? So there's some data issues, some data gap issues that I'm sure the industry can work towards. But the biggest problem with proof of reserves in retroing this past year and what happened with FTX, Celsius, Three Arrows Capital and every everything is, is the data gaps, the stuff that happened not on-chain. As the marketing guy here at Chainalysis, I like to point out to people, proof of reserves is great, but if you have a million dollars in, in the bank and you've signed a 10-year contract paying a million dollars a year to sponsor a Formula One team or a, a major sporting league, that reserve is going to get evaporated pretty quickly. And that contract and the obligation to pay those funds out over time doesn't get reflected on the blockchain today. And so proof of reserves may be one part of the solution, but we either have to have have much broader transparency, or we have to have some commitment to a regulatory audit process that allows a third party, if we're not going to get complete and full transparent disclosure, we at least get a third party who's able to verify, hey, this is a safe place for me to deposit my funds and these products are legitimate. You know, when I see the advertisement offering me an eight or 10% 
interest return, it's real or at least above board, right? It's not manufactured on the back of a market manipulated token, I guess. I, and I totally think that on-chain data is a big piece of this puzzle. Like, how do we bring transparency? How do we get people accountable? How do we know who's doing what and why? I think on-chain data is a huge part of this. I mean, I can see exactly what Loans 3 Arrows Capital was doing in DeFi. We can see it all happening. It's an incomplete picture, but it's definitely important data that's that we're now using and able to make a lot of things make sense now. But it's right as of where we stand right now, it's definitely not the whole story. Yeah, completely. Well, I think this is a great place to wrap, Kim. Any final comments, perspective, outlook, predictions? Who's going to win the Super Bowl? Do you have a <laughs> do you have a horse in that race? I would say the Rangers, the Rangers, New York hockey team. I'm just kidding. I just I don't know who's <laughs> who the big football teams are. <laughs> All right, We're a you don't you don't family. get. Yeah, you don't you don't get a uh, a Super Bowl prediction, but you just did get a Stanley Cup prediction. Stanley it's going Cup. to the Rangers. Yeah, there you uh-huh. go. Kim says the Rangers are winning, so everybody rush out to the sports book and make that bet. In the world of crypto, any predictions that we didn't get to that you want to put out there? I mean, I think the hard one lesson so far is that the industry is going to. I mean, as someone who's been focusing on cyber crime so far, I think that cybersecurity is going to be a big theme of 2023. I I think a lot of the businesses that do well and help revive trust in the industry are going to be those that help with code audits and help people organize how they're running their security, their operational security and their DeFi protocols. I know that's kind of like a boring answer, but I think it's one of the more exciting things because I am tired of there being two years in a row of of unprecedented hacking in this industry. I think folks are going to get better at it. There's some really cool companies out on the horizon that we're going to have on the podcast this coming year that are focused on building infrastructure and platforms to to shut down, I think, volume and the severity of some of these hacks. So it's going to get better. I'm excited for 2023. Kim, thank you again for joining me today. We'll do this again soon. (laughs) Can't wait to come back next time. I think we're going to have a lot of interesting subjects to cover this year. Hey there, thanks for listening to another episode of Public Key. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and our newly launched TikTok and revamped YouTube pages, where we share our favorite moments captured in this podcast and other great content from the Chainalysis team. And if you have a minute, drop me a tweet. I'm at DC and tell me what you'd like to see next. Following the sanctions theme of this episode, last week you might have seen the news that the US Treasury imposed full blocking sanctions against 22 individuals and entities related to a sanctions evasion network supporting Russia's military industrial complex. OFAC listed cryptocurrency addresses as identifiers for one of the individuals, highlighting the fact that he was engaged in projects connected to Russian defense capabilities, including supporting sanctioned state-owned Russian defense entities Rosoboron Export and Rostec, which are key parts of Russia's military industrial complex. If you don't want to miss our weekly podcasts and other interesting highlights from the world of crypto compliance, head to our website, chainalysis.com, scroll to the bottom, and subscribe to our weekly newsletter.